If you've got your Bibles or if you've got the North Point app on your phone, go ahead and open that up. Turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to get there in a second. Um, We're going to eventually start about uh, verse 38. Um, But before we get there, let me me take your mind kind of two different places. There is a classic line in two classic movies that's identical. All right? And here's your challenge. See if you can figure out what this line is. The two movies are Star Trek The Wrath of Khan... All right? And The Godfather from 1969. There is one line in both movies that's identical. Does anybody know what that is? Never saw it. Did any of you ever see The Godfather? First service, no one would admit it. All right? Um, Anybody see Wrath of Khan? If you haven't, you missed a good one. Anyway, here's the line, and you you may know the line even without having seen the movies. Revenge is a dish best served cold, all right? Uh, Those two movies are all about revenge in one form or another. And if you think about movies in general, revenge is this theme that drives cinema, right? There's all kinds of movies. You think about big classic revenge movies like Gladiator, right? Uh, uh, Braveheart, It's, it's all about revenge. Then there are movies that are made from books that are all about revenge. True Grit is all about revenge. Of, of, that, uh, of the girl whose dad died, right? Um, uh, the Count of Monte Cristo is all about this long-term set of revenge. Um, the, there are uh, virtually every movie made by Clint Eastwood, right, is, is about revenge. There's a movie uh, from 2005 called Munich that, that was all about the guys whose job it was to go back and exact revenge on the, on the, the guys who had... Um, who had committed the terrorist act and uh, the, the Jewish athletes, Israeli athletes in 1972 in the Munich Olympics. Um, revenge is a theme that is a part of our world. It's a part of who we are. In, uh, in World War II, there was a pilot for Germany named Franz Stiegler. Um, he, he had become a pilot before the war ever started. He ultimately ended up involved in the, in the war and flying over the course of the war. He survived the war. And I think the number of missions that he flew during World War II was 487. He was a decorated, decorated pilot. His younger brother was named August. And uh, August um, enlisted in the Air Force as well rather than be drafted into the infantry. And in the first wars, the, the first years of the war, August was killed when the bomber that he was flying was shot down. A little bit later in the war, um, uh, the German army drafted, drafted Stiegler's father at age 65. They brought him into the war to train horses for cavalry units uh, because they were having trouble with their machines and they needed the horses. A horse, as he was, uh, as, as the older Stiegler was doing his duty, a horse kicked him in the head, and he died. The city where Stiegler was from, uh, the city where Stiegler was from was bombed by the Allies and nearly leveled, almost destroyed. His, his mom lived in a house outside of town, but with virtually no supplies as the war moved on. On December 20th, 1943, Stiegler was one victory away from the Iron Cross, the, the, the symbol of decoration for all German pilots in World War II, for any pilot who shot down 30 enemy planes. As he was in a, in a battle that day, he landed and refueled his plane when he saw an American B-17 bomber 
um, limping through the sky at an incredibly low altitude and went right over the airstrip where he was being refueled. Stiegler um, refueled his plane, went up into the sky to destroy the plane, to protect Germany from the bombs, and to earn his Iron Cross. 21-year-old Second Lieutenant Charlie Brown, yes, that's his real name, Charlie Brown, was flying, he was the pilot for the B-17. That B-17's name was Ye Old Pub. It was Charlie Brown and his crew's first bombing run that they had flown in the war. And after, after taking off, they flew through a, a flak area that had crippled their plane. They had been strafed and their rear gunner killed. Their guns had frozen because of the, the fight at the altitude at which they'd been, and the, the guns literally froze from the temperatures, and they were flying defenseless. Their nose had been destroyed, half of their tail shot off, and they only had three quarters of one flap. As Stiegler approached the plane to get the kill, he marveled at the damage the plane had endured. He could literally see the carnage inside the plane, and see the crew caring for injured crew members. Stiegler stood ready to fire and could see the gunner in the top of the B-17 holding his machine gun, but not firing. Stiegler not knowing that it was still jammed. Stiegler was a veteran pilot, but he had never seen a wounded plane still flying with such courage and honor. Knowing that he could face execution if he were ever discovered, he chose not to fire and escorted the plane over German flak post at the coast of Germany, flying within 20 feet on the wing of the American bomber. Through hand signals, he tried to signal the American pilot to Sweden, a neutral country only 30 minutes away. Charlie Brown continued his path for England, believing the German fighter was directing him to return to Germany and surrender. After several minutes of miscommunication, Stiegler saluted the pilot and the American crew, returned to Germany in the air battle with other American bombers. Two hours later, the B-17 Yield Pub landed in England. What would cause an ace pilot whose brother had been killed, whose father had died, whose hometown had been destroyed to not destroy his enemy? What indeed? Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, don't resist the one who's evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and don't refuse the one who would borrow from you. Yesterday at lunchtime, I went into the kitchen. I said to Deb, hey, tell me what you think about, about this passage of Scripture from the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, turn the other cheek. What do you think that's about? And Deb looked at me, and she said, why are you preaching about such controversial subjects? She said, you know, you preach about lust, you preach about divorce, now you're preaching about turning the... Why are you doing it? I said, it's because it's the Scripture. You know, it's, it's the passage of Scripture that's there in the Sermon on the Mount. Because when you hear that, right, all kinds of questions start to resonate in your mind. 
Am I supposed to let somebody beat me up? If somebody breaks in my house, am I not supposed to defend myself? Are Christ followers, are Christians supposed to be pacifists? Am I supposed to give away my clothes or somehow give more than the court orders if I get sued? Am I supposed to give every homeless person, every person with a cardboard sign, money? Am I supposed to loan my tools, my car, my answers on my test at school to anyone who asks? What was Jesus talking about as he preached? It's critical for us to understand the context as Jesus spoke. Anytime you look at scripture, you need to know who, uh, who a particular passage was written to, um, what was going on at that time, and, and who the listeners were, what, why, what was being said, and why. Jesus at this point is in the Sermon on the Mount. He's preaching his most famous sermon, and this message that he's saying is, your religious leaders have taught you a whole bunch of stuff, but here's the perspective from God's heart. Here's what you need to get because you've drifted. The religious leaders have drifted from what God's original intent was. His audience was entirely Jewish. On that hillside, there may have been some guards around on the outside just wondering what was going on with this big crowd of people. But it was entirely Jewish. So when Jesus said, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, those Jews immediately knew the law. They knew what Jesus was talking about. In the book of Exodus, God had given instruction on what to do in a variety of circumstances when there were personal injuries or death. In Exodus 21, um, the, the law starts and says, when, when, women, when men fight and hit a pregnant woman, if she delivers her baby and the baby's fine, there's a fine for that. But if she delivers her baby as a result of that fight and the baby dies, uh, verse 23 says, if there's harm, you shall pay life for life. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. In Leviticus, the law said, if anyone injures his neighbor as he, is, as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. In Deuteronomy, God gave instruction on what to do if a case went to court. You had to have two or three witnesses. The testimony had to be true. If somebody perjured themselves um, before the leaders in court, the penalty that they were trying to inflict on the other person would be inflicted to them. Think about that and how that might transform our legal system. The section finishes with these words. You shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear, and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Mahatma Gandhi, in reading this section of the Sermon on the Mount, said, an eye for an eye only ends up making the whole world blind. We hear that and we applaud it, but Gandhi missed the, po the point entirely. He missed the point of the law. The laws were given in the Torah for a number of reasons. God gave those laws for a reason. The law was designed to create a penalty that was equal to the crime. So if somebody came and twisted your arm behind your back and it broke your arm, what was the penalty for that? The penalty was to break that person's arm as well. Fracture 
for fracture. If somebody punched you in the face and it, and it, and it damaged the orbital socket and, it, and you lost your sight as a result of that, the penalty for that was that you would lose your sight as well. The law was designed to be a deterrent to revenge. It, w- it was designed to stop revenge from happening. Um, the Israelites knew that if they committed a crime against a fellow Israelite, or against their property, the same thing that happened would happen to them. As a result of that, crime was not very common. The deterrent worked. The law that God gave kept conflict from escalating. Our natural reaction is to respond when somebody injures us or does injustice to us. And just to make sure that the person who has hurt us understands how much we've been hurt, what we're going to do back to them is what they did and a little bit more, right? It's, it's, our nature is such that we're going to make sure that they get that. And when they're injured then, they're going to respond back. I talked to somebody in between first and second service and they said, you know what, I have, I have boys at home. That is so true because what happens if one of the boys punches his brother what's going to happen? The, uh, the brother is going to punch him back harder. And when he hits him harder, um, what's going to happen then is they're going to end up on the floor wrestling. And uh, it's just going to continue to escalate and escalate. The laws were designed to stop that escalation. Here's the penalty. It's exactly what happened to you and no more. They were enforced. Those laws were enforced by the Israeli courts, by the culture, by the leaders of the, of the Jewish people. The point wasn't to promote retribution, it was to limit retribution. Those laws were given to stop vigilante justice. The laws were to, to be enforced by the courts, not by individuals. God's system was not for, for personal vendettas, for personal judgment, but for dispassionate enforcement by authorities. The only problem was that by the time of Jesus, the Jewish leaders had made it an issue to personally enforce those laws, even if they didn't come to court. It had become a vindictive right to make sure that that happened. So Jesus said, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, don't resist the evil one. Now, for us, when we hear that, that's troublesome, right? We hear, don't resist the one who's evil, and we think that that means we're supposed to be pacifists. It means that we're supposed to lay everything down and not respond at all, that we're never to resist anyone who's evil. But that doesn't make sense in light of the rest of Scripture, because in the book of James, James says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Just a few weeks ago, as we were studying through the Sermon on the Mount, we talked about Jesus saying, you're to be salt and light in the world. What's the job of salt? It's to resist infection, to resist um, the destruction of the meat. It's to to push back against that. What's light do? It dispels darkness. It's to resist darkness. Jesus wasn't saying, give everything up and just be a pacifist and, and let people trample all over you. One commentator said the word resist may be translated somewhat more broadly as don't take revenge on someone who wrongs you. Don't let your heart get so caught up in the injury that you've experienced that you're you're bent on responding to them. 
in that way. Don't resist the evil one. Don't let your heart turn hard. Jesus said, do what no one else would do for the sake of love. Your religious leaders say, do what everybody else does and, what, and wants to do. They get even. But I'm telling you that no one, I want you to do what no one else would do and see if your heart isn't transformed. And then Jesus goes ahead to give four examples of what that might look like. He says, he says this, when you're humiliated, do what no one else would do for the sake of love. When you're humiliated, do what no one else would do for the sake of love. Jesus said, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. A slap in the face was a huge insult in the Jewish culture. For us, if we were to translate that, although nobody wants to be slapped in the face right now, uh, the, the, the level of, of insult that would be would be like somebody coming up and spitting in your face. It created this immediate response that made you want to fight back. A slave at this time would rather have a whip across his back than a slap across his face because the whip might cause physical pain, but the slap was demeaning and humiliating and insulting. One commentator said, striking a person on the right cheek on the right cheek, suggests a backhanded slap from a typically right-handed aggressor. And it was a characteristic Jewish form of insult. Jesus wasn't saying, don't, don't ever fight back. The picture that he painted for his hearers was when somebody humiliates you, when somebody tries to turn you inside out, don't respond. Stay in relationship with them. Turn the other cheek. Stay close so that you might, you might still be able to have an influence there. You might still have a relationship with them. Jesus said, turn the other cheek when somebody humiliates me. When someone insults, belittles, demeans, bullies you, do what no one else would do for the sake of love. Jesus said, when you get what you deserve, do what no one else would do for the sake of love. He said, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. A couple of things that help, uh, that help explain that picture. The tunic was the undershirt that, that people wore. It was the garment that was closest to their body, and their cloak was the outer garment. According to Jewish law, you couldn't, uh, your, your, your outer cloak could not be taken away from you by the courts. It was your protection from the elements. It might be your pillow at night or your blanket that you slept with. And so the courts had said, you can't take that from somebody. But you could sue them and take their tunic, their undergarment. Uh, you've heard the expression, you're suing somebody for the, you're gonna, their shirt off their back, or they lost their shirt. That's, that's that picture there. It's important to understand that Jesus said, if somebody sues you for your tunic, give them your cloak as well. What we often miss in that picture is this. For someone to sue you and to be awarded your tunic meant that you did something wrong. It meant you lost the case. You, they deserved to be given your tunic. And so um, it, when you get what you deserve, do what no one else would do. Go above and beyond. If the court says, give them your tunic, don't just give me your tunic. Give me your cloak as well. Don't just do the minimum. Go beyond that. When you're inconvenienced, 
do what no one else would do for the sake of love. Jesus said, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. The Roman law at this point in time, Rome had conquered Palestine, had conquered the Israelite nation. And, and the Roman law said that a soldier or a, an official of Rome could conscript any of the people that had been subjugated and force them to carry their stuff for a mile. They couldn't make them go farther than a mile, but they could make them go for a mile. So here's the picture. I'm a Jewish man. I'm doing my work. I'm, you know, I'm working outside or whatever. I've got reservations at the Mediterranean restaurant for seven o'clock. And um, I'm going to go home and just kind of chill, get cleaned up a little bit before my wife and I meet our friends at the restaurant at seven o'clock because that's when we have the reservations, right? Um, and so I'm on my way home. It's been a hard day. It's hot in Palestine. And this Roman soldier who's wearing all this armor and got this huge knapsack that weighs 60, 70, 80 pounds comes up and says, um, I need you to carry this this direction for a mile, start now. And I, and, and I would say, my home's that way. I've got a reservation at the restaurant. And the Roman soldier would say, who cares? We're going this way now. And by law, that Jewish man had to carry that burden for a mile. It's interesting that Jesus supports the governing authorities in that he didn't say break the law. He said honor the law. Don't just honor the law, go beyond that. If he says to go a mile, don't just go a mile, go two miles, go an extra mile. The phrase going the extra mile comes, comes from the Sermon on the Mount in this passage. It would have been incredibly inconvenient for the person to walk the mile and to walk a second mile because then they had to walk those two miles back before they got back into their routine and on their schedule. Um, you know, when I was studying that, 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 that passage, it, I got thinking, who benefits? Who benefits by going the extra mile? If I take that burden and I walk the mile and then I say, and I say to the Roman soldier, you know what? I'm going to keep going. I'm go I can go another mile. Who's that benefit? The Roman soldier, right? He doesn't have to be a bully and conscript somebody else a mile down the road. It's going to create a really interesting conversation with him. Why are you doing that? The other person that it benefits is the person that's a mile away that's going to get pulled into service. The person who's innocent in the whole process may not even know that they were going to be the one drawn into service. Jesus says, you know what? When somebody inconveniences you, Accept that and, and take the inconvenience off someone else in the process. Jesus said, when you're asked for help, when you're asked for help, do what no one else would do for the sake of love. Give to the one who begs from you and don't refuse the one who would borrow from you. We read that and we think, that can't really mean, that can't really mean. Anybody who asks, I'm going to give to, you know what, if somebody comes up and asks me, if, you know, if my four-year-old comes up and asks me for my gun, um, am I going to give them? It can't mean that. It, it doesn't mean that. Because Scripture is clear. Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he says, if a man doesn't work, don't let him eat. So, so there's this sense of discernment that comes. But what Jesus was saying was not a literal, anytime anyone asks anything, give it to them. What Jesus was saying is, let your heart be shaped and changed to be the heart of a giver. 
when there's a request, when there's a need, do whatever you can because your stuff is just your stuff. It comes from God. Be, be free with that. One of the things that, um, that I love about North Point is that Jason Beebe leads our benevolence team in an incredible way. There, you know, we take up the benevolence offerings and are able to bless people in incredible ways, but that never happens without Jason and a part of his team going and sitting down with people and talking and saying, okay, what's your need? What's going on? What brought you to the place that you are right here? And can we help with what the real need is, not just the immediate financial need? He does an incredible job with that. Um, we want to be discerning as we give, but we want to have hearts of givers. I've said to Jason, we've said it in the church office often, I would rather give and be taken advantage of for a need that's not, not legitimate than not give and miss the opportunity to leave that person with a legitimate need and not have that need met. You know, we listen to what Jesus said and, and it, that's, that's hard stuff. We, we, all these objections come to our mind. We say, wait a second, it's not fair. It's not fair for me to walk that extra mile. It's not fair for me to turn the other cheek, to not respond when somebody humiliates me. It's not fair for me to give the, the stuff that I have that I've worked hard and earned and just give it away. That's not fair. Can you hear the voice of your parents saying, life isn't fair. You know, we want fairness, right? But we want fairness for other people. We want grace for us, right? We want, we want fairness to be exacted on other people. The problem is we don't really trust that fair is going to be accomplished through our boss or our teacher or our parent or our court's or sometimes even God. We want to take fair into our own hands. Fair was an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's not the way we want to live. That's really hard. It's really hard. It's, sometimes we read that passage and we think, you know what? If, if that's true, if that's what God wants me to do, Jesus must not really care about me. He must not care whether or not I get hurt, whether I get taken advantage of. Of course Jesus cares. But he cares more about your response to what happens to you than he does about what happens to you. He cares about your heart. If you're bent on retaliation, if you're bent on revenge, your heart's in the wrong place. You need to to come in the operating room and allow Jesus to do the work to change your heart. What's your heart going to be characterized by? Is your heart going to be characterized by anger or vengeance or bitterness or whining or complaining? Is your heart going to be characterized by plotting and scheming for how you're going to get back at someone who, who has hurt you? We ask the question, why would Jesus want me to do those things because he wants to change my heart. He wants my heart to get beyond myself and to care for others, even people who despise me, even people who want to hurt me. 
even people who don't deserve it at all, even when it's not fair. If you think about the example of Jesus in the New Testament, and in your mind right now, you play the videotapes and think all the way through the Gospels, everything you know about Jesus, is there ever any incidents in Scripture when Jesus protected or defended himself, that he fought back? There's not. I remember as a kid singing a song in church, a hymn that it's etched in my mind. The title of the hymn was 10,000 Angels. He could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set us free. He could have called 10,000 angels, but he died alone for you and me. The example of Jesus was that he trusted God completely to be fair, to, to exact justice. He trusted God to make everything right, and he didn't feel the need to defend himself. Now, he did defend his disciples. He protected the woman caught in adultery. He, he took care of other people on all kinds of levels, but he never took care of himself. Peter wrote this. He said, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. When you do good and suffer for it, you endure it. That's a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus and said, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ, God forgave you. Paul wrote to the church in Rome and said, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. How do you do what no one else would do? How do you live that out? How, how, do you, how do you put into practice what Jesus said at the end of Matthew 5? The first thing, the core to it all is to rely on Jesus. You can't do it on your own. You can't control your will in that way. It's only through the power of the Holy Spirit, God working in us, that we, that we can do that. Rely on Jesus to give you the ability to respond in the way that Jesus would have you. Second thing, I think, has to do with our perspective of the people around us. We need to see those people who are demeaning us, those people who are humiliating us, those people who are trying to hurt us. We need, we need to see the story that God wants to write in their life, not the chapter that they're experiencing right now of drama and anger and pain. We need to see their entire story that God wants to write. We need to exercise godly wisdom 
Now, th- these examples that Jesus gave, they, they were not four isolated pieces. Jesus was trying to help the listeners understand what God wants our heart to be, to not have a heart that's consumed by vengeance, by retaliation, but to have a heart that's soft, that sees other people with the eyes of God, that loves them for what they can become. We need to trust God to make things right, both in 1 Peter and Romans. You know what? God's in charge. He's going to take care of stuff. The ultimate question for us, do we trust God to make things right or not? Do we feel like we've got to do it because God's not going to? That's a hard question. Jesus said, do what no one else would do for the sake of love. Our love for Jesus compels us to do for others what no one else would do. Our love for other people should compel us to do for them what no one else would do. Our love for ourselves, our concern that we would have a soft heart, that we wouldn't become embittered and angry, that we wouldn't, that we wouldn't grow into these people that are just a mess because of the hardness of our heart. Do what no one else would do for the sake of love. In 1990, through a remarkable set of circumstances, Franz Stiegler and Charlie Brown met and spoke for the first time. It had been nearly 47 years since their encounter over Germany in 1943. In his book, A Higher Call, Adam Makos describes a scene that's hard to imagine. Franz Stiegler had been invited to a reunion of the bomber group which Charlie had flown in. Franz and Charlie and their wives were gathered around a B-17 on a tarmac in Florida. The news crews that had come for the reunion and interviews had left and were gone. And all that remained was Franz and Charlie and their wives, the four of them. Out of a nearby hangar came the remaining elderly members of Charlie's bomber crew and their wives and their children, and their grandchildren. None of them, none of them would be alive were it not for the decision made by Franz Stiegler to do what no one else would do. To not exact retribution, to not exact, to not seek vengeance, to not do what society and human nature called for, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Was Stiegler foolish On December 20th, 1943, perhaps. But eternity changed because of his foolishness. Is it foolish to turn the other cheek? To give your coat when all that's required is your shirt? To go the extra mile? To give to people in need? Perhaps. But that foolishness may alter eternity for someone in your life. Listen to the words of Matthew 5 from the message. Here's another old saying that deserves a second look. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Is that going to get us anywhere? Here's what I propose. Don't hit back at all. If someone strikes or humiliates you, stand there and take it. If someone drags you into court and sues for the shirt off your back, Gift wrap your best coat and make a present of it. 
And if someone takes unfair advantage of you, use the occasion to practice the servant life. No more tit-for-tat stuff. Live generously. You're familiar with the old written law, love your friend, and its unwritten companion, hate your enemy. I'm challenging that. I'm telling you to love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. When someone gives you a hard time, respond with the energies of prayer. For then you are working out of your true selves, your God-created selves. That's what God does. He gives his best, the sun to warm and rain and to nourish to everyone regardless. The good and bad, the nice and nasty. If all you do is love the, um, is love the lovable, do you expect a bonus? Anybody can do that. If you simply say hello to those who greet you, do you expect a medal? Any run-of-the-mill sinner does that. In a word, what I'm saying is grow up. Your kingdom subjects. Now live like it. Live out your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously towards others the way that God lives towards you. Let's pray. God, you know, you know what a struggle this is for us. God, you know the tension that's in us right now as we think about people who try and hurt us, as we think about situations that we encounter where everything in us wants to fight back. God, our desire today is that you would transform our hearts that you would change the way that we think, that you would change the way that we respond, that you would change the way that we see people, and that we would live and love and see with your heart. God, we can't do it on our own, and we know that you don't want us to try and do it on our own, that you want us to depend on you, Fill us in a new way today so that we can do what no one else would do because of love. In Jesus' name we pray.